Well, I don't eat as much fruit as I probably should, but the one fruit I will eat are apples, specifically Honeycrisp apples. Any Honeycrisp fans here? Right? Right? When I discovered Honeycrisp apples about five or six years ago, um, their perfect crispiness, that perfect balance of sweet and tart, uh, I just haven't been able to go back to any other kind of apple. I'll try, and I just can't do it. Like, they seem mushy, and I just spit them out. I can't I wait for a Honeycrisp apple. I can't eat anything else. In fact, one of my go-to snacks now, sometimes my entire lunch, is a large Honeycrisp apple cut into sections and dipped in peanut butter. Yep, <laughs> peanut butter. Great combination. Uh, Honeycrisp apples, if you didn't know, were developed at the University of Minnesota uh, in the late 70s over a period of years. Um, they were patented in 1988, and they're actually... I don't understand the science of this. I was trying to read articles about it, but they're actually different from every other apple on the market right down to the cellular level. You can see the difference in a microscope, evidently. They're now the state fruit of Minnesota. They only grow well in colder climates, northern Midwest, um, upwards in Minnesota, Michigan, especially in the state of Washington. And Honeycrisp apples are more expensive than any other apple, I believe. Sometimes two and three times as expensive because they're much more difficult to grow and more difficult to harvest, but in my opinion, worth every penny. But here's the obvious thing. Honeycrisp apples only grow on Honeycrisp trees. Their unique taste, their unique texture, their unique character is utterly dependent on the tree. And that's where we begin today. We're in the third part of a series we're calling The Way. We began a couple of weeks ago with what Jesus had to say in John chapter 14, verse 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We said that uh, the way to God is through Jesus. The way to salvation is through Jesus. And it's, that way is absolutely exclusive because he is the only way according to his own word, but it's also absolutely inclusive because his way is open to anyone who will come to him in humble faith. Last week, we looked at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. There we said Jesus is talking about a complete transformation of what I call our central operating system, the central operating system of our lives. And today, Jesus teaches what his way produces in our lives. Now, the context of the text we're going to look at today is called the Upper Room Discourse. And it's appropriate that we're celebrating communion at the end of the service today because the Upper Room Discourse takes place on the last night of Jesus' earthly life, the night of the Last Supper uh, in the Upper Room. And he spends uh, four chapters in the Gospel of John, John 14, 15, 16, and 17, are all happening on that evening around the table. And Jesus begins by promising his disciples the Holy Spirit. In John 14, verses 16 and 26, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then he says, and this is our text for today, and it's a long one, I'm going to break it apart a bit, but stay with me through this text. John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean 
because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now let me stop there for a moment before continuing on. This is the last of seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the gospel according to John. He says, I am the bread of life, John chapter 6. I am the light of the world, John chapter 8. I am the gate, chapter 10. I am the good shepherd, also chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life, chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, chapter 14. And then this one. All of those identify Jesus as the eternal Son of God, the Messiah. And here he says, I am the true vine. Now by vine, he's not talking about the vines that grow on bricks like at Wrigley Field, but rather grapevines. For two reasons. First of all, grapevines were extremely common in ancient Israel because wine was a huge deal in that ancient culture. It symbolized God's blessing and God's promise and God's favor. And so the grapes were used for making wine. And secondly, if you go back to the Old Testament, a vineyard or the vine was a symbol of the nation of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 5, we read, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So God had planted a, a vineyard, his people, to honor him and to serve him. But if you read the context of the Old Testament, his people had failed in that calling. They were not always faithful to the one who had planted them. So here, basically, Jesus is saying, Where you, my people, have failed, I will become that for you. I am the true vine, he says. Back to verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. I'm going to stop there again. Now, at first blush, we read this, and even when I first read it, or I've read it over the years, it sounds like, you know, an angry, frustrated farmer who's throwing out branches that don't produce properly. But if we look a little more closely at the language he uses, and in the context of this teaching, I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Notice he begins by saying, every branch in me. Those two words are really important. Every branch in me. Okay, these branches are in him. He's talking about his followers. And the word translated takes away is iro in the Greek. The same word Jesus used last week when he said, take up, pick up your cross and follow me. So in this context, a better understanding of the translation would be to lift up or to pick up, not necessarily to take away. And in that time, as grapevines grew, sometimes they would grow along the ground. Uh, And when they grew along the ground, they were vulnerable to being too wet or to pests or to a lack of sunlight, and they don't thrive. So often the vine dresser would come along and lift them up off the ground, prop them up on trellis so they could grow properly. If you see grapevines today, they grow up on trellises, not on the ground. So what he's saying then is uh, using this everyday example of a vineyard to illustrate what he wants to do with his followers. The second kind of uh, branch he mentions says, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So these are branches that are bearing fruit, and the vine dresser still prunes them. And we know this from gardening around your home. You prune something not to punish it, but so that it will grow more and become more fruitful the following season. We're going to come back, come back to pruning in just a bit. So we see this everyday example to see what Jesus is teaching about what his desire is for his followers. That we bear fruit by being, staying connected to the vine. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now here, this is a different kind of branch. Notice he says, these are the branches that do not abide in him. So these would be those who do not follow him, who do not follow Jesus. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now there's a ton of stuff in here, as you can tell. So let's dig in and find out what he's teaching us about the way of discipleship. First, he's teaching us about the way of abiding. The way of abiding. Our youngest son Uh, Canaan has been living with us in Batavia since coming home back in the spring from playing basketball in Europe. There's a picture of him playing over in Malta. Uh, He's been recovering from a couple of injuries, a knee and a foot, and so he's uncertain whether he can play another season or not. So while he's been weighing his options, he needed to find work. And so he eventually found work to do in Indianapolis. So he was planning to uh, rent an apartment down in Indianapolis until he figures out his basketball future. But our oldest son, Jordan, and his wife, Hanukkah, who's expecting a baby later this month, That's an actual ultrasound image a month out from delivery. Can you believe the pictures they can get these days? And can you see the resemblance to Grandpa right there? (laughs) Quick poll. They're waiting to find out until birth whether it's going to be a boy or a girl. They don't know yet. So quick poll. How many think it's going to be a boy? How many say girl? Ah, okay, we'll see. We have two granddaughters so far, so we'll see. Well, we'll be the first to let you know, that's for sure. Uh, but they just bought a house in Indianapolis and moved in last week. So when they heard of Canaan's plan to rent for just a few months, they said, no, 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 well, just come stay with us. Don't use your limited resources on renting. That's throwing money away. Just come stay with us until you know where you're going to go next. And so that's almost a literal translation of what Jesus means when he says abide. They say abide, come abide with us. Again, Verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now here's the thing I notice first, Jesus is, is getting ready to leave them. They don't understand all that yet, talk about that in a minute, but he's getting ready to leave, so he's given them his last most important instructions, and he doesn't say as I might have thought to say, you know, you're, if you say your child's going off to college or whatever, remember to do everything I told you to do. Remember to obey me. Remember to do it right. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, make sure you go out there and bear fruit. 
He says, I want, you to be, I want you to go make up more disciples. I want you to build my church so it can last for 2,000. He doesn't say that. He says, he starts with, abide in me. In fact, he uses that word abide, you probably noticed, 11 times in 17 verses. Now, abide is not a word we use very often in English. Like, we don't say, hey, nice to meet you. Where do you abide? We don't say that. We say, hey, why don't you abide with us for dinner today? We say, why don't you stay for us for dinner? We ask, where do you live? But abide is a good word because it gets our attention. It sounds kind of like a Bible word, but it gets our attention. The ancient Greek word is meno. It can be translated as abide or remain. In fact, the NIV translation says, remain in me and I in you. It just means to stay with or to live with. It's the very same word Jesus uses when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, which he would later that same night, Matthew tells us, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here. Abide here. Stay with me and watch with me. Now, again, the greater context, Jesus is getting ready to leave. His death is the following day. His resurrection a couple days after that. His ascension sometime after that. All that's coming, but the disciples don't know that yet. He's told them that the Father will send them the Helper, the Holy Spirit. And they don't really understand that either. Not yet. And before all this happens, he just says, Abide in me and I in you. He's saying, I'm leaving, but our relationship will not end. Our relationship will continue through the person of the Holy Spirit that I will send to you, and you can still be with me and I with you. I will remain with you, in you, and you will remain in me. And so long as you abide, so long as you remain, so long as you stay connected to me, you will bear fruit. Now this is where this week's passage is connected to what we talked about last week when Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We saw that denying yourself means to allow Jesus to become your central operating system. In other words, Jesus does not intend to be an addition to your life. He's not a kind of supplement to your lifestyle. He's not an app to make our lives a little more convenient. Jesus intends to be the source of our lives, the center of our lives. So what does it mean to abide? And how do we abide? I think two main things I'll pull out of this this passage today. First, it means to abide in his word. Verse 3 says, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. What word? I think Jesus is talking about how he has described himself, what he has said about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd who leads you. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one who makes you clean. I am the one who saves you. And then in verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What does it mean to have his words abide in us? It's not just that we know his words or can remember his words. Maybe you can memorize his words. But rather that his words penetrate and reshape who we are. 
In Hebrews chapter 4 we read, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Last week we talked about a change in the fundamental operating system of who we are. A surrender of the self. And this happens when the Word of God, which is the truth about God, the truth about us, the truth about Jesus, when it penetrates and pierces our hearts, we are transformed, born again from the inside out. New operating system. I didn't say this last week, and I intended to, but this, all this tells us it's entirely possible to believe intellectually in Jesus. Yes, he existed. Yes, the Bible tells us about him. But yet to resist his word. We can believe intellectually. We can assent. We can agree. But we can resist his word. We can resist death to self. And it's also possible to believe in Jesus but fail to abide in his word or to allow his word to abide in us. The first thing is to abide in his word. The second thing it means is to abide in his love. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. I want to pause there for just a moment. I want you to listen to that again. I mean, we, we, we sit in church, we read Scripture, you hear me read it, and you're like, okay, yeah, that sounds like something from the Bible. But let me read those words again. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. We have uh, two granddaughters, as I mentioned, and we get the privilege of watching our daughter-in-law love them as their mother. And the love of mother is a great thing. It's a great love. An unimaginable love. Many of you know that love. But he does not say, I've loved you as a mother has loved her child. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I loved you as a husband loves his wife. Until death do us part. That's a great love. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, as a brother loves a brother, as a sibling loves a sibling, or a sister loves a sister, or as best friends love best friends. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. What kind of love is that? One writer says it this way. Think of it. How does the Father love the Son? With absolute, unreserved, everlasting, unwavering, joyful, affectionate, radiant, glorious love beyond all imagining. God is love. At his baptism, Jesus heard the Father say, This is my, what? Beloved Son, in him I am well pleased. Now we think, well, yeah, yeah, the Father loves the Son, but that's Jesus. He's perfect. Of course the Father loves him. But me... Not so much. I'm not perfect. I mess up. I fail. I have a hard time even loving myself. And yet Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So abide in my love. Now, let me say this. Being fully loved is hard. Do you understand what I'm saying? To be fully loved is hard, even terrifying in a way, because to be fully loved means you are completely known. Because someone can't fully love you if they don't completely know you. And this is why we can actually resist, push back, try to push away. 
the love of God. That's why Peter says at one point, get away from me, Jesus. I am a, a sinful man. That's why in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet says, woe to me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, because he sees the glory of God. See, the opposite of abiding is avoiding. And it's quite possible to avoid the love of Jesus. For Jesus' love for you, for me, is complete, constant, relentless, but we must choose to abide in it through his word and by the Holy Spirit who he has given to dwell within us. So the way of abiding. Secondly, we see in this passage the way of bearing fruit. Way of bearing fruit. Now, you've seen this up here. You wonder, what's in the box? What did he bring this week? Okay, this is a piece of a grapevine. A friend of mine in church uh, has a small vineyard on his property. So I went out Thursday morning. He let me cut off a section of it so I could use it as an illustration. But it, I had it in my garage for a couple days, and it sort of dried out. So it looks a little sad. So, but this is the vine here, the main vine. And then these are the branches, what they call either shoots or canes, that sprout out these little, of these little woody sections here. And then the branches have the grapes. These are tiny little grapes, but there's grapes on there. You can see that. So that, that we don't usually, we don't see a lot of grapevines. I wanted you to see. This is how, what the grapevine looks like. Okay, so the vine, the branches are connected. They grow and they bear the fruit. He says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Anyone who does not bear, abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Here's the simple truth Jesus is illustrating. Uh, the fruit is utterly dependent on the vine. Uh, the fruit reflects the vine. Just as a Honeycrisp apple is dependent on the tree and reflects the tree, so it is with a follower of Jesus. The follower of Jesus is dependent on and bears the fruit of Jesus. But what's the fruit? I think at least four things we can pull out of this passage. First, the fruit of obedience. Verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, notice the connection between abiding and keeping. If we take this verse out of context, if we lift this out from what Jesus has just taught us, it can sound a little like we have to obey, we have to keep all the commandments in order to be loved. But that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He began with, abide in me, abide in my love, and our obedience is, that, is the natural reaction, the fruit of that abiding. That's what he's teaching. Secondly, the fruit of the Spirit. Paul teaches us in Galatians chapter 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Control against such things there is no law. Now I would guess that many times, I think it's true, many times we read these, about these qualities, we see these words, and we think of them as sort of personality traits. You know, we have a friend that, who's just as a patient person. We sort of attribute that to a personality. Well, it's not really my personality. It's their personality, right? No, that's not what's being taught here. 
These are the spiritual character traits that the Holy Spirit wants to grow in every single one of us all the time. Regardless of your personality type, regardless of your personal background, regardless of your family history, regardless of how hard it is for you to be patient, this is the fruit of abiding in the vine. So, if you have a problem with patience, you don't have a personality issue, you have a Holy Spirit issue. If I have a problem with self-control, I don't have an impulse problem, I have a Holy Spirit issue. And the Holy Spirit then wants to prune, cut back that which is not productive to make something more productive. How does the Holy Spirit prune? How does that work? Well, a couple of ways. I think through um, life experience sometimes, through the events that happen to us, The Holy Spirit moves in and teaches and guides through life situations. For example, developing patience. Or maybe sometimes through the Word. We are pruned by the Word as the Word teaches and instructs and corrects. And the Spirit guides and convicts. And sometimes the Spirit disciplines us. But Hebrews tells us the Lord disciplines those He loves. This text, Jesus said He prunes the ones who are bearing fruit because He wants us to bear more. So pruning happens. Because the Lord loves us and wants us to bear the fruit he has promised us. Thirdly, the fruit of prayer. Verse 7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, this is a bit of a complicated one, because at first it sounds like Jesus is kind of like a genie in a bottle. You know, you just get the bottle, rub it a little bit, say, in Jesus' name, and boom, you get what you wish for. Right? I've heard people use it like that. In Jesus' name, I want, uh, oh, a Ferrari and a million dollars in the bank, and perfect health, and successful children. Right? And it, we laugh about that, but a lot of times that's what our prayers kind of sound like, I think. That's obviously not what he's teaching here. Notice he says, if you abide in me, and if my words abide in you, when our hearts are filled not with love of self, but rather with the love of Christ, when the central operating system of our lives is not selfish in nature, is not the self, but rather is the Holy Spirit, then our desires become that which the Holy Spirit desires for us, and then what we ask for, what we pray about, aligns completely with the will of the Father. This is why Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The fruit of prayer. And fourthly, the fruit of love. Verse 12, he says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Then verse 17, These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus is getting ready to leave. Again, they don't know that yet. He's preparing them for that departure. He knows they are going to face trials and trouble that they have never anticipated. He knows they are going to feel alone. They're going to feel afraid. They'll have doubts. They're going to struggle. He wants them to know that they are going to need each other. They are going to need to be able to love one another. That's the fruit of abiding in him. And that leads us to the greatest fruit, which I think becomes our entire point three to this message, which is the way of joy. The way of joy. Verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 
These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let me ask you a question. Um, do you tend to think of Jesus as being joyful? Be honest. Do you think of him as being joyful? I mean, we know he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We think of his suffering every Easter time. Uh, last week he talked about carrying our cross and following him. The day after he said these words, he was going to carry his own cross and then die on it. And now he talks about joy? I think when we think about the Christian life, we think about what it means to follow Jesus, we often think about words like faith, obedience, servanthood. All those are good words, very appropriate words. Maybe sometimes you think of struggle or doubt or discipline. Or maybe if you've been exposed to a, to a legalistic or toxic form of the gospel, you might think of guilt or duty or obligation. Here's the single word Jesus gives us to describe. Joy. Joy. What is this joy? Where does it come from? I think it comes from three places that he talks about. First, he says, I have loved you. I have loved you. Greater love is no man than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Here's the source of our joy. Jesus laid down his life for you, and you can't do anything to stop that from happening. It already happened. You can't change the fact that he loves you. You can accept it or reject it, but you can't change it. You're loved. He says, secondly, I have called you my friends. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. The servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. Jesus has called you his friend. Such, a, such an ordinary word, friend. Think of the best friends you have right now. Or the best friends you've had in your life. It brings up warm feelings. A friend is a powerful thing. You can take all those friends you've had, and they're a mere reflection of the great friend you have, and Jesus, who has called you friend. And then thirdly, he says, I have chosen you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Do you remember the awkward moment at recess when you would choose up sides, choose up teams? And you, had that, you have that, that fleeting panic, well, will somebody choose me? Will I be the last one? Will I be chosen? Or he tells us, here, you did not choose me. I chose you. I chose you to go and bear fruit for me. I chose you to be my friend. I chose you in my love. So, Here's the source of our joy. You are loved by Jesus. You are a friend of Jesus. You are chosen by Jesus. And the result is joy. I heard one preacher say it this way. If you have a lack of joy in your life, you most likely have a lack of Jesus in your life. I'm going to close with a story I've told many times here. I don't know how many times over the years. And I'm going to keep telling the story because it's so seminal in my experience of what the gospel is in the experience of my life. During the winter of 1982, I was 25 years old and believed God had called me into ministry. I was still single, living in a small apartment on the, near the campus of Taylor University, working my way through grad school by earning $30 a day as a substitute teacher in middle schools and high schools and helping coach basketball. And I was doing my best to follow the call I thought the Lord had put on my life, but it was just taking forever. I couldn't see 
six months ahead of me. I didn't know what he was doing. I didn't know what direction to take, and I was frustrated. So one night that winter, I was praying by myself in my little apartment. I, 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 I didn't have enough money to pay for uh, heating, so I wrapped myself in an electric blanket, just plugged it in the outlets as I walked around. I was in the electric blanket praying, uh, and I, all I was doing was praying the best I could. I, I wanted direction. Show me where to go. Show me my next step. Show me what I can do for you. And in the middle of that prayer, and I was, doing my, I was really being as honest as I could be, I sensed the Lord speak back to me, not audibly, but just sort of inside me, a voice I learned to listen to and to recognize. And what he said to me surprised me because what he said was, Brian, he used my name, I love you. But that's not what I wanted to hear. So I responded inside myself again, in my mind and heart. I said, I know you love me. I've always known that. But what I really need to know is what do you want me to do? What's my next step? Where do I go from here? Please make that clear to me. And the voice spoke again, again internally, this time a little more firmly, and said, Brian, I love you. And I again responded, I know that. You know I could sing Jesus Loves Me before I could recite the alphabet. You know that. I know that you love me. But what I really need to know is what do you want me to do? And then he spoke a third time. This time, he was stern. Brian, I, period, love, period, you. And this time I stopped resisting. I can't really explain it. And I began to weep. I don't cry very often, but I did by myself. No more words, no more demands for direction, just his love sort of pouring out over me like a great waterfall. And somehow that was enough. It took another five years for me to get clarification in that call from that moment. And then another seven years after that until I saw the call clarified even more. But looking back from the vantage point now of 40 years, I think that Jesus did meet me in my apartment that night. And I think he wants to meet us often like that, through his spirit. I think he wanted me to know more than anything else that before I did anything for him, I needed to know the depth of his love for me. You hear that? Before we can do anything for him, we must know the depth of his love for us. We must learn to abide in his love. So where do you abide today? Where do you live do you abide in your past, failures, guilt? Do you abide in your future, anxieties, worry, fears? Maybe you abide in your pain, or maybe you abide in yourself. That's what our culture teaches. Who or what is the source of your life? Here's how you can tell. What fruit is being produced in your life? What fruit is being produced? Because a fruit always reflects the vine, the tree. Jesus said, if you abide in me and I in you, if you allow my word to shape you and to prune you, you will bear much fruit. Bow with me as we close and prepare ourselves for the Lord's table. Lord Jesus, I thank you today for your word, for this beautiful image of vine and branches. As we come to your table in a few moments, remind us of what it means to abide in your love. Teach us what it means to allow your word to abide in us, to dwell in us. And by your word and your love, we ask you to produce good fruit. Prune us where you need to prune us, but produce the good fruit of your spirit, the fruit of love, and the fruit of joy. 
It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We come now to the Lord's table. This table belongs to him, not to us. So if you're here today, even for the first time, and you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus, then you're welcome to share bread and cup of communion with us. In a moment, we'll pass out the trays. In each spot, there are two cups stacked together. Uh, please take both cups and just hold them until all have received, and I will lead us through the remembrance of bread and cup. The New Testament tells us that on the night before his death, the same night, by the way, that he taught on the vine and the branches, Jesus took bread. He blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples with these words, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of him. After the bread, he also poured the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sin. The Apostle Paul reminds us that as his followers, each time we drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. Do this in remembrance of him. Receive now today's benediction. May we go now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and may you abide in his love and may his joy abide in you. Amen. Have a great day. Thank you.